Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. I'm delighted each week to talk with you about the practical side of ministry, and very seldom do I turn the podcast into more of a preaching-type experience or a teaching-type experience, but I want to do that a little bit today because it's Easter week, and I want to talk with you not only about how to be more effective in preaching and teaching on Easter or on holiday Sundays like this one, I also want to just share with you some uh, devotional thoughts I have about Easter, which are forming the foundation of my Easter message that I'll be preaching this weekend. First thing I want to do, though, is talk a little bit about some ideas about improving your preaching and teaching on Easter Sunday. The first thing I would say is that since it's Easter, you should preach about the resurrection and preach the gospel. Now, the reason I say that is because uh, some years ago, I uh, dealt with a situation where a pastor arrived at Christmas and decided rather than to preach on Christmas, because after all, everybody's heard that one before, he decided to stay with his normal series of messages that he, messages that he had been preaching and in fact, just basically skipped Christmas. That was not a smart move. Don't fall into the temptation of thinking that you can skip Easter. I know everyone's heard the story before and everyone knows what you're going to be preaching anyway, But go ahead and preach about Easter, preach about the resurrection, preach about the gospel. Don't overlook the theme that's so obvious on such an important day. Now, a second thing in preaching and teaching on a day like Easter is I would encourage you to keep your message short. In fact, maybe preach even a little shorter than you're accustomed to preaching, or if you're in a teaching context like a class or a discipleship group or a Bible study, Maybe teach a little shorter in that context as well. Now, you might say, well, that seems counterintuitive to what we ought to do. And after all, many people only come to church once a year on Easter, and we need to give them as much information as possible and uh, communicate as much of the gospel as we can and and try to cram as much as we uh, can possibly get into that first few minutes that we have with them on Easter Sunday. Well, that's actually the opposite of what I would advise. It's true On Easter, you have many guests and casual attenders and uh, people who are dressed uncomfortably because they're not accustomed to wearing their Sunday clothes or their Easter clothes and coming to church. And so you might think, well, because of all of that, I've got to do even more than I normally would do. And the the actual reality is the opposite. You need to do a little bit less. You see, you're not going to make up for a year's missed church attendance in one Sunday by giving them even more than you might normally give on a particular Sunday or a normal Sunday crowd. No, you're not going to make up for that. So don't even try. Instead, focus your Easter message on being more specific, more to the point, and perhaps a little shorter. Now, I'm not talking about preaching for five minutes, but to preach a little bit shorter so that you hold people's attention who are not accustomed to listening to long messages anyway, and to really focus in specifically on getting the core message of the gospel clearly communicated. So preach about the resurrection and preach the gospel and preach it specifically and intentionally and maybe a little shorter than you normally would. Third, be positive. Easter is not the day to go negative or to make negative comments about people not coming to church or about them not being there often or about any other aspect of their lack of spiritual interest the rest of the year. Focus on the positive. The people who come on Easter, they're present. They want to be there. Uh, They have some spiritual interest and some 
uh, preference for the Christian faith. That's why they're coming on an Easter Sunday to a worship service. So don't be negative about their presence. Instead, be positive. I think about a story that happened in my church many years ago. Uh, I was training the deacons of our church to give the welcome on Sunday morning. And uh, this one deacon's turn came about on Easter Sunday. He stands up in front of the congregation, and there's these beautiful white Easter lilies around him on the stage and on the stairs and on the uh, Lord's Supper table at the front of the auditorium. And he says, we want to welcome you to our church today. I know some of you are not accustomed to seeing it unless it's decorated in red. Oh, man. His lame attempt at a joke about people who'd only come to church on Christmas and Easter fell flat. And instead of being a positive moment, it was a negative, deflating moment in the Easter service. Because rather than focusing on the positive, that people were present. They had come to church. They did want to hear the preaching and the gospel. No, instead of focusing on the positive, he focused instead on the negative. Well, you haven't been here since Christmas, but welcome back, I guess. And in that tone, really made a negative impact on the service rather than a positive contribution. And then finally, and this again will be counterintuitive to what so many plan on Easter, but be routine, as routine as possible on a special day like this. You know, church leaders often create unnecessary stress by trying to do too much on holiday services. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be some special features or some special components or some special decor. I'm not saying that you can't have a special service. But I am advising that you don't try to pack so much into the service that it becomes a stressful, demotivating experience rather than an encouraging, uplifting experience to have been a part of a church on Easter. So as you think about moving into this Easter Sunday and other holiday Sundays like this one throughout the year, keep in mind that some of the most obvious things that we think we all ought to do may be the opposite of what really needs to happen. So preach about Easter. Preach the gospel. And don't be afraid to preach it a little shorter than you normally do. To stay on point, making a clear presentation of the gospel in a succinct fashion that really captures the attention of your hearers. And remember, be positive about the people who've come and about the opportunity to impact them on Easter. And as much as possible, be routine. Do the things you normally do. Do the things you always do. In other words, de-stress the moment by not trying to overstack the special aspects of the service to the point that it becomes stressful rather than inspiring or encouraging. Now, again, as I said, that doesn't mean you can't have special features or special events or special decor. It just means that you're very careful not to overdo it and undermine the impact you're really trying to make. Well, finally, and one last thing I'd add is when you do preach on Easter, the gospel and the resurrection, and you preach it a little shorter than normal, and you preach it as positively as you can and as routinely as you can, I would also advise you to not stress too much yourself about trying to preach something that's never been preached before or come up with that message that's never been done before, because quite frankly, it's Easter. Everybody pretty much knows what you're going to say and how you're going to approach it. 
And so what I've tried to do over the years is rather than come up with something that's so unique and so different and stress myself out by trying to come up with a message like has never been preached before in the history of Christianity on Easter Sunday or Christmas Sunday or any other holiday Sunday, instead, what I've tried to do over the years is come up with one fresh idea, just one new idea that gives that common message or that familiar message or that well-known message like Easter, resurrection, gospel, just a slightly different viewpoint or a slightly different perspective, just that one idea that makes it special each year. Well, this year, as I was thinking about my Easter message, uh, and I have been thinking about it for some weeks, I was reading in the Bible one morning in my devotions, and I came across a passage of Scripture which spoke about Jesus predicting his resurrection. That got me to thinking, how many times did Jesus predict the resurrection? And when he predicted his resurrection, what did he communicate in those prediction stories? What kind of insights was he trying to get across? What kind of foreshadowing was he trying to communicate? What kind of uh, learning was he expecting would come out of those predictions? Well, that got me thinking about something else, and that is predictions can be a slippery slope of embarrassment if you make them too confidently about certain things. For example, here are some uh, suggestions of bad predictions. Daryl Zanuck, who was the co-founder of 20th 20th Century Fox in 1946, said, television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Mm, That prediction. Television won't last. Mm, That didn't turn out so well. Here's another one. The Titanic is unsinkable. Philip Franklin, the vice president of the White Star Line, which had produced the Titanic in 1912, made that bold statement. He said, actually, there is no danger that the Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable, and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers. Well... I think there are some people who would beg to differ about the sinking of the Titanic being only an inconvenience. Here's one I like. William Orton, the president of Western Union in 1876, said, The telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. Where would we be today without the telephone? And how about the automobile? Oh, no, the automobile is just a fad, some say. The horse is here to stay. In fact, the president of the Michigan Savings Bank in 1903 made that exact statement. The horse is here to stay. Why would anyone want to replace that wonderful means of transportation? He said the automobile is only a novelty or a fad. Well, moving away from inventions, how about this one? Uh, The executives at Decca Records uh, released a statement in 1962 that said, The Beatles have no future in show business. They said, we don't like your boys' sound. Groups are out. Four-piece groups with guitars, particularly, are finished. Well, maybe not quite so much. And then, in 1966, in a magazine article about the future, the editors of Time magazine wrote, online shopping will never be popular because, here's a quote, women like to get out of the house like to handle the merchandise, like to be able to change their minds. Online shopping, 1966, 
It'll never happen. It'll never be popular. And then, in our generation, maybe the most famous prediction in my lifetime, which didn't quite turn out the way people said, and that was, Y2K will destroy the world. You remember that. When the year 2000 occurred and everyone thought that computer systems were not going to be equipped to handle that transition, Y2K will destroy the world. Well, we all woke up on January 1 of 2000 and the world had not been destroyed. Computers were still working. And all those warnings were for naught. What a prediction. Didn't come true. Well, these are just some examples that I found that were kind of humorous, I thought, and also a little bit telling about our inability to predict the future and our arrogance about claiming that we always know what's coming and what's best. But Jesus was a bit different. On several occasions, I found four or five different ones. On several occasions, Jesus predicted his own resurrection. And when he predicted his resurrection in the context of doing so, he often taught important principles that really undergirded so much about what we understand about him and about his gospel and about his way of life. So let me just give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. The first one is in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. The Bible says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do you people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. <laughs> this is one of the more remarkable confrontations in the Bible. Jesus predicting his coming resurrection and Peter taking him aside and rebuking him. You know, when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Peter answered correctly. He revealed his spiritual insight by saying, you are the Messiah. So Peter had significant spiritual insight. But Peter always struggled with spiritual insight over against human reasoning. For while he declared Jesus was the Messiah, when Jesus then said, yes, I am the Messiah, I'm the Son of Man, I'm going to suffer, be killed, and rise after three days, the human reasoning side of Peter's mindset kicked in. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Yes, Peter said, you are the Messiah. 
But wait a minute. Suffering? Death? Resurrection? Not going to happen. Jesus, come over here and let me talk to you for a minute. Let me see if I can straighten you out just a bit. You are confused. That is not the way Messiah is supposed to act. And then Jesus says something remarkable. Get thee behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Man. Now, I've been called a few names in my time. I've been called some things I can't even say on a podcast. But I have never been called Satan. Think about how that must have felt for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. What a confrontation that moment was. Get behind me, Satan. Well, this prediction of Jesus' resurrection foreshadows the kind of Messiah that he was going to be and confronts Peter in his human reasoning of the kind of overcoming leader he wanted Jesus to become. You see, suffering and death and resurrection make no sense as a leadership strategy. No. Leadership strategy? That's all about promoting yourself, lifting yourself up, conquering others, gaining traction, building momentum, achieving notoriety, gaining all those social media followers that give you that high Q rating and make it where everyone knows your name and wants to follow after you. But Jesus said, "Mm mm-mm, no, that's not the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. That's not the kind of leader you can expect me to be. Instead, he said, I'm going to lead through suffering and death and resurrection. You know, Jesus communicates here that the resurrection really does culminate God's plan for not only redemption, but God's plan for Jesus' messiahship, his leadership, and the impact he made in our world. Well, that's just one example of Jesus predicting the resurrection what he taught in the context of that prediction, and then how, out of that prediction, he was able to make such a very significant point. Well, here's another example. Turn with me over to John chapter 2 for another story in which Jesus predicts his coming resurrection. Let's start in verse 13. The Bible says the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here! Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace! And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. 
Therefore the Jews said, huh, This temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Destroy this temple, Jesus said, and I will raise it up in three days. And these dullards, while the temple took 46 years to build, and you'll raise it up in three days? I can just see Jesus shaking his head at their spiritual dullness, their lack of capacity to understand what he was really saying to them. You know, in this story, Jesus predicts his resurrection in the context of shattering all kinds of religious systems, religious expectations, and religious practices. He starts by shattering the religious holiday of the Passover. He did all this work that he's describing here on this Passover experience, going into the temple, flipping over the tables, driving out the animals, creating the disruption, and in that sense, really disrupting the Passover. He also disrupted a religious place here. He goes into the temple to do all of this, the holiest place, the place of worship and devotion, place of prayer. Jesus goes in and creates chaos in the temple. And then, of course, he also disrupts these religious offerings that were taking place. This selling of doves and exchanging of money and providing of animals. This wasn't just a market. This was a means by which people were practicing and preparing to make the offerings that were necessary that day in the temple. So I want you to see it. In the context of Jesus predicting his resurrection, he shatters religious systems. He obliterates the practice of the Passover. He does all of this action in the place in the temple. He disrupts all aspects of the offerings that were a part of these religious practices. Listen, the resurrection reminds us that the gospel is about life, not about religious practices. The gospel is not about religious holidays. The gospel is not about religious places. The gospel is not about religious practices. The gospel is about life. Now, it's easy for us to look at this story and say, well, of course the gospel wasn't about the Passover or the temple or the offerings. But we see those as negative religious practices. I want you to understand that the gospel overcomes also your positive religious practices and obliterates any trust you might have in them for your ultimate relationship with God. For example, you got to be aware that you put too much trust in religious holidays. You say, well, I like Easter, and I really like Christmas. Well, I do too, and there's not anything wrong with that. 
But if you're depending on Christmas and Easter to sustain your faith or to draw you closer to God or to give you the boost you need to carry on for a few more months until you can get to that next holiday season, then you're putting way too much trust in the religious ritual of practicing holidays, even religious holidays, to sustain your faith. What about religious places like the temple? You say, well, I don't have anything like that. Oh, really? You know, in my ministry lifetime, I've moved a church from one location to another, and I have moved a seminary from one location to another. And in both cases, one of the struggles that people had in leaving was leaving what they considered to be holy places. Now, again, there's not anything wrong with having places that have a lot of fond memories attached to them. Uh, some of us can remember the church where we got married or the uh, park bench where we proposed to our spouse, or we can remember uh, where we were when we found out that we were having our first child or something like that. There's not anything wrong with having a good sense of memory about place and attaching place to positive memories in our lives. Got to be careful, though, that we don't become so fixated on place as our relationship with God depends on it, that we lose focus, that the gospel is not about places. The gospel is about life. Then what about these religious practices? You know, it is so easy to get caught up in this offering giving like these guys were in this story and to think, well, you know, the rituals of our faith are very significant. In fact, they are what sustain us and give things meaning. Well, I had a funny story about that just recently that happened. Our our church where we attend, it is the habit of the deacons to wear white gloves when they serve the Lord's Supper. And this has been a tradition for years in this church. And so on Sunday when it's Lord's Supper time, uh, the deacons come forward and they make a, uh, a little ritual of putting the gloves on and smoothing them down before they touch the, uh, gar- uh, the, uh, the implements uh, to hand out the juice and the wine and the, uh, the bread and all of that. They, 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 they don't touch anything without those white gloves on. Well, our church started a second site, and uh, we had been going for a few weeks when it came time to serve the Lord's Supper the first time, and someone remembered to bring the, the juice and the bread and, and uh, prepare that beforehand, but when it came actually time to serve it, there was a momentary panic that set in because suddenly it was discovered we didn't have any white gloves. Now, here we are meeting in a public school gymnasium, a second site of a well-established church. And the people who had come to help start the church had come from the other church with a long tradition of doing things a certain way, having those certain religious rituals that gave things meaning and value and purpose and order, and we didn't have any white gloves. And it was a courageous moment when one of the leaders said, you know, We don't have to have white gloves to serve the Lord's Supper. Now, you may say that's a silly example. Is it really? Think about the different ways that you have ritualized your faith. A certain place you like to sit in the worship center at your your church. A certain way that you like to sing the songs. A certain way you like to see the offering received. A certain way you like the sermon to be preached. A certain way you like the bulletin to be printed. A certain way you like the ushers to come and take care of things in the service. You you institutionalize these rituals. And again, nothing wrong with ritual. Nothing wrong with doing things decently and in order and beautifully and carefully. Nothing wrong with any of that. 
But when the rituals become your religion, when, when the rituals become what gives meaning to your faith or to your practice of your faith, then my friend, you have lost focus on the resurrection and what it means that life, vitality, newness is at the center of what we believe in practice. You see, Jesus said that to these guys that day. He said on the Passover, on a religious holiday, in a temple, in a religious place, amidst a bunch of people preparing to give offerings when they were practicing their rituals in ways that were offensive to him, in the midst of all of that, he said, I'm going to tear this all down and build it back in three days. And they said, you can't do that. It took 46 years for us to put all this into place. And Jesus said, three days, three days, because I'm talking about the temple of my body. In three days, I'm going to come back alive, and you're going to see that the essence of the gospel and the essence of a relationship with me and the essence of everything I stand for is not holidays and places and rituals. It's life. And that's what the resurrection says in this story. Well, that's just two examples. If you're fascinated by this, go into the Gospels and study some other examples. There's four or five of them of Jesus predicting his own resurrection. And then look at the context of what happened around those predictions. And you can see some of the insightful ways that the resurrection foreshadows and in fact predicts important things about what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and then to live out that relationship in the Christian life that we're all endeavoring to practice. I hope you have a fabulous Easter Sunday. I hope you celebrate a wonderful, holy week and weekend, and that it is a time of profound impact for you personally, as God works in your life, and then through you in the lives of other people. I know that Easter is a special time in my life and in our family, and this year I'm thinking a lot about Jesus predicting, foreshadowing, telling his resurrection was coming, and then what that means to all of us who've now experienced it on the other side. God bless you as you celebrate Easter and as you lead on.